Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. thought the best thing this summer we could do was dig into the book of Revelation. Come on, anybody excited? Uh, We're not going to do the whole book because we don't have enough time, but uh, we are going to do the first three chapters just to set expectation. And uh, I have one goal this summer, uh, really, and uh, as we kind of took a look at the summer, and you know, sometimes this summer is one of those, you know, oh, you know, attendance down a little bit because people are traveling, those kinds of things, you know, I'm going to relax a little bit. But the, 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 the rhythm of our life changes over the summer a little bit, doesn't it? I realize that many of you still have to go to work, uh, but how many of you have kids at home right now, not in school? How many of you are loving that right now? It's early days, it's early days, it's okay. But uh, I, I, my goal this summer, and our goal as a team this summer, is that we would give Jesus his rightful place in our lives. And uh, that's really what my goal today is, really simple. We're going to go take a look at Revelation chapter 1 and, uh, and dive into Revelation chapter 1. We're not able to go, obviously it's one sermon, so we're not able to go through everything. Some of you are like, oh, I really want to go through all of this stuff, you know? Why are his eyes flaming? Why is his hair white, you know? And, uh, and there's obviously reason for why John wrote that way. But, but today, and really the whole book of Revelation is about giving Jesus his rightful place. And this summer, I hope that you'll take time, not just on a Sunday morning, but in your own devotions, in your own journey, in your own walk with Jesus, that you will take the time this summer, maybe when the schedule isn't as packed, maybe there's some, a little bit more downtime, your rhythms have changed a little bit. I believe that this is a summer when we as a church family, you as an individual, can consecrate yourself to Jesus. That, that maybe there's a reprioritization, there's a reordering of some things. And I personally kind of sense in my heart that God wants to encounter us like never before this summer. And so my goal is simple. How do we give Jesus his rightful place? Now, over the next seven weeks, we're going to take a look at, at a message that Jesus wrote to seven different churches. Now, he wrote it to them, but it was for us. And in it, we learn some things about how we give Jesus his rightful place, how we give Jesus his rightful place in our lives, and how we give Jesus his rightful place in our families and in this church. But before I do, um, you know, in Ecclesiastes, it says this. It says that we are to weep with those who weep and celebrate with those who celebrate. And so I want to give you the opportunity to celebrate with me this morning. Uh, I went on a bike ride yesterday. Yep. You're like, Gareth, you always go on bike rides. Yes, but yesterday's bike ride, it was only 20 miles long. There was 1,000 feet of climbing. Uh, I, I got up to a maximum speed of 39.2 miles an hour on a, on a tire that's like three quarters of an inch thick. Uh, you know, so I'm a daredevil. <laughs> but on yesterday's ride, I set 17 personal records on Strava. Some of you don't even know what that is. In fact, I have, look, there it is. There it is. Look at that. See, look at that. I, I rode for a mile, an hour and 34. I rode 20 miles. I climbed almost 1,000 feet. Look at that. Maximum speed, 39.2. You can't see the 17 PRs. That's the little yellow one that says PR, or the gold one, actually. I got gold. But I want you to see in the middle of my personal records yesterday, one of the records that I set yesterday was on a thing called 
made it through the hardest part of life. There was a segment on my ride yesterday called Made It Through the Hardest Part of Life. I just want you to know that your pastor has made it through the hardest part of life. Yes! Look, I even got a prize. I got a little sparkly thing. It's awesome. Right here. Now, don't, don't you wish that it was that simple? Right? How many of you know, my, my Jenny's uncle, uh, he pastored for some 60 years, and he used to always say this. He said, you're either in the midst of a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're going into a trial. Like, life is just hard, isn't it? In fact, Jesus actually said these words in John 16, verse 33. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the reality is that you and I, we, we, we face troubles. One of the things that, you, that cyclists will oftentimes try to encourage each other with, I don't know how much of an encouragement it is, but we say it this way, it doesn't get any easier, you just get more used to it. It doesn't get any easier, you just get more used to it, right? And what I discovered yesterday was that, man, I've been pedaling a little bit this summer, and it didn't get any easier. I was just getting a little bit more used to it. And as a result of it, I was able to push through. I'm finding myself getting stronger because of the adversity that I've been facing as I go on my bike. And the same is true for you and I as we live life. I've been parenting my kids, you know, my uh, uh, two, well, all three of my kids have kind of moved into the adult phase. I've got one that just moved to New York City to LA, and he's trying to find a place to live. And man, we have countless conversations almost daily at this point where I'm just trying to encourage him. I'm trying to build him up. And I, I caught myself this last week saying, it doesn't get any easier, but you just get more used to it. Because as I looked back on my own life, I realized that, man, the trials that I faced when I was in my early 20s and the trials that I face today, they're just like magnified. They're just like different versions of the same thing, aren't they? That there's just trouble. There's challenge. How do we overcome? How do we make it through this life? Which got me wondering, is there a better way? Is there another way? As we sang this morning, even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it. Well, for the people that John wrote this letter to, this was exactly what they were going through. In fact, what we're going to discover in the first three chapters of Revelation, though it's through the entire book of Revelation, is that, that John has been this revelation has been revealed to John, and the purpose for it was to encourage faith. The purpose for it was to embolden courage. The purpose for it was to build them up, to give them a different perspective on life. They faced incredible challenges. They faced overwhelming uncertainty. They faced paralyzing fear. Ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe this fall, into 2024, we're going to face some things that, that are incredible challenges, that create overwhelming uncertainty, that maybe even paralyze us with fear. But what we discover in the book of Revelation, or this letter, which by the way is the longest letter that was written in the Bible, but the, this letter called Revelation, technically the revelation of Jesus Christ, in this letter... 
They're presented with a fresh vision, with a fresh perspective. They're presented with the idea that it is victory over doubt. It's peace in place of uncertainty. It's faith over fear. It's clarity over confusion. It's direction over disorientation. And don't we live in a world that is disorientating? When you think about our economy, think about record credit card debt. We have over a trillion dollars. It's the highest that's been in over 40 years. Negative economic indicators, shrinking economy, potential job losses. We look at our culture, and perhaps our culture and our politics is more divided and polarized than ever. The sexual ethic of our, of our day is more confusing than ever. Ideologies, philosophies, religions, media, education, all of these things circling around us. What's right? What's true? What's wise? What's helpful? Should I be concerned for my kids, my future, our financial well-being? It can all be pretty disorientating. In fact, speaking of disorientating, how many of you know what the number one apex predator in the world is? How many of you would think maybe it's a lion? How many would think maybe a bear? How many of you think maybe it would be, you know those sheep that make the steel wool? You guys don't have those here? We have them in Ireland. They're amazing. Where do you think your steel wool comes from? But you know what? The number one apex predator in the world is actually the orca. And the orca, now don't they look cute? The orca is actually known as the killer whale, which is ironic because it's not even a part of the whale family. It's technically a part of the dolphin family, which means that... The orca's cousin, Flipper, was actually a cousin to a killer. Maybe in 1993, we shouldn't have freed Willie. But one of the things that we discover about the orca, the orca actually travels in pods, and sometimes there's up to about 20 orcas that will all travel together, and, and they use this strategy to capture and to kill their prey. And one of the things, they, they use disorientation. They try to disorient the prey. And one of the things that's, that, that you'll know about, an ape, about the orca is that the orca will kill almost anything. Great white sharks, right? It'll kill uh, large whales, seals. It doesn't matter. In fact, maybe you've seen on the news recently that they're attacking boats in the Strait of Gibraltar. They will attack anything. But one of their strategies is to try and to disorient their prey. And so what they do is that there's, let's say there's a, a, a great white shark that they're going to go after. They will have a, a couple of orcas that will be above and below and to the left and to the right. There will be a couple behind that are chasing this great white shark. But they always leave what seems to be an opening out in front of them. And the great white shark will start running, so to speak, or swimming to get away from this, these orcas that are going to attack them. But man, they can't move to the left or to the right or to the up or to the down, and they just keep swimming. And they can swim up to two miles. Orcas can chase their prey up to two miles. They're patient. They'll persevere. They'll keep going because of their great stamina and endurance. But about two miles out, there'll be a couple of orcas just hanging out, ready to slam the door on a now tired, confused, and exhausted great white shark. And this 
is the strategy that the enemy, your devil, the devil uses against you and I as followers of Jesus. That the enemy will go after us to exhaust us and to confuse us and to, and to, and to make things disorientating. He tries to go after our faith. He tries to go after what you believe. He tries to get you to a place where you will rely upon your own strength. You don't have to rely upon him. You don't have to rely upon culture. Just rely upon yourself. But the challenge for us is that it leaves us exhausted. It can leave us confused, especially in the water of culture that we swim in. What is right? What is true? What is wise? What is good? How do we navigate these waters with so much confusion, so much disorientation? Well, this is exactly what was taking place for the original readers of this letter of Revelation. And I think it's important for us, you know, some people really love Revelation. How many of you have read the book of Revelation at some point in your journey? How many of you say, nope, way too confusing. I'm not reading that thing. I just need a verse that'll encourage me today. You know, like the one that you get on a coffee cup? Like, I just need one of those. You know, there's not too many verses out of Revelation on coffee cups. It's too confusing. But this letter was written to a specific group of people that were living in a specific place at a specific time, which means that Revelation cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the original audience. And sometimes what we do with the letter of Revelation is that we read into it, we try to insert a headline, you know, like the Apache helicopters are the locust. Well, it can't mean that. It can't mean what it didn't mean to the original readers. And so we have to understand that Revelation was written to a specific group of churches, a specific group of people living in a specific time, living in a specific place, dealing with a specific kind of pressure or disorientating thing that was going on in culture. And the letter was written to them, but it was written for us. In other words, there's lessons to be learned out of this book of Revelation, not just what's, when's Jesus coming back and what's the end time going to look like. But there are lessons to be learned about how we live life today and how we relate to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In fact, what we see in this letter to Revelation is that it declares something that's true that we may not see clearly. That's why it's called an apocalypse. Remember when we did the Ephesians series a couple of months ago? It was listed as we described or we unpacked. What does this mean? Because Ephesians was also known as an apocalypse, which literally means an unveiling, an uncovering. There's a revealing of something that we haven't previously seen. And John is doing the same thing in writing this letter. Jesus, in revealing this revelation, is revealing something to us that we may have missed or we may have forgotten about. And this is what we're trying to do. In fact, I love what Paul Spillsbury says. He says that revelation is out to undermine our confidence in the evidence of our own eyes. Let me read that again. Revelation is out to undermine our confidence in the evidence of our own eyes. And we have a tendency, don't we, to look at the natural, to look at circumstances that are around us, to look at those things that we can empirically measure, see, touch, feel, understand, and then we fill in the gaps. It must mean these things. And what Revelation is trying to do for the original reader and for you and I is to help undermine our confidence in the evidence of things that we see. 
Like what my eyes try to tell me. How many of you know there is something beyond what you see, hear, touch, feel? There's a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that actually rules over. And we talked a little bit about this when we unpacked uh, the the book of, um, of Ephesians. And here's what I want us to see, is that God wants us to see reality from his perspective and to understand that he is in complete control. Now, it might be that you've gone through some really difficult, challenging times. It might be that you're in the middle of something. It might be that there's something that's coming. And, and when I look at our culture, not that I've got any kind of a crystal ball, not that I'm forecasting anything, but the life doesn't seem to be getting easier and easier and easier. It seems like it's getting harder and harder and harder. And what I need as a follower of Jesus, what you need as a follower of Jesus, is not to see life from our perspective, not to see life from culture's perspective, not to see life from what news, media, social media would communicate to us. No, no, no. we got to see life from God's perspective. How is it? What is it that he sees that if I could just see it, it would fundamentally transform the way I live life? Victory over doubt Peace in the place of uncertainty, faith over fear, clarity over confusion, direction over disorientation. I've already said that the original audience, is this okay? Oh, wow, that was really quiet. Is this okay? This morning's just an introduction. And so I'm trying to help us frame in, because over the next seven weeks, we're going to unpack what this means. But, But the original audience was facing an incredible amount of persecution and uncertainty. And the the book of Revelation was actually written in AD 96, which puts it about 63 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. So 63 years has passed. And in those 63 years, things have changed for these original early believers. AD 33, we know that uh, in Acts chapter 2, right, the day of Pentecost, that, that God shows up in the midst of his people, and you know the story, like thousands of people are saved and added to the church, and for decades, the church was just thriving and growing, originally kind of in a, in a Jewish context. In fact, by, even by this stage, it was predominantly in a Jewish context. In other words, it was Jews who were converted to Christianity, which meant that these early Christians oftentimes were still integrated and a part of the Jewish community. They still attended the synagogue, but now they were having their meetings in that place. That became kind of their epicenter for this early faith. But what began to happen around AD 54, so about 20 years later, an emperor by the name of Nero, he gets, he's now the emperor of Rome, and he begins to persecute the followers of Jesus. He found Christians to be irrational and ignorant and closed-minded because they refused to worship the pagan gods of the culture, including the Roman Empire. And so he considered them, man, these guys are disloyal, they're subversive, they're poor citizens. And so he started to persecute the church. This is in AD 54. Fast forward 10 years, AD 64, AD 65, Paul and Peter are now murdered by the Roman Empire. AD 70, Jerusalem is completely destroyed. And what we find is that there's an empire 
that's threatened by this early church because lives are being changed, culture was being transformed, the poor were being taken care of, the sick were being taken care of, people were getting saved, life was happening through the church. And so persecution began to mount. 80, 70, Jerusalem's destroyed. They scatter out throughout the then known world. Now, by AD 92, remember, this is now 60 years since Jesus ascended to heaven. Things had gotten even worse. There's a new emperor. His name is Domitian. And Domitian, he's a profoundly insecure ruler who demands that everyone in the Roman Empire worships him. In fact, he actually changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire, and he called himself the Everlasting King. Sound familiar? No, it's not Rome anymore. No, it's the Eternal Empire. This thing's going to go on forever, and I... I'm the everlasting king. And so what he did was that they they built Roman temples all over the Roman Empire. In fact, many of the cities we're going to read about had a Roman temple. And Rome didn't care who you worshipped. I mean, you could be pluralistic in your faith, you know. But the one thing you had to do, no matter whether you were a citizen or a Jew, if you were in the empire of Rome, you had to go to the Roman temple. You had to take some incense. You had to throw it onto the fire. And as you threw it onto the fire, you were to declare Caesar curious. Caesar is king. Effectively, what he was now saying You have to worship me. It doesn't matter what other religions you had, what other beliefs you had, but you had to bend your knee to worship the culture of that day. And so they were having to, you know, every citizen would go. For most people, they're pluralistic in their faith. They didn't care, right? Sure, check the box, right? We'll just go throw some incense on, Caesar Curios, we move on. But for these early believers, this created a real problem. Because the early believers honor Caesar, absolutely. We honor Caesar. In fact, you see the same pattern back in Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They honored Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Daniel, when he went to speak to Nebuchadnezzar, goes, oh, great high king. He honored him. He respected him. But worship him? For these early believers, no, we can't do that. Respect Caesar, yes. Declare absolute allegiance to Caesar, Absolutely no way. And so for John and these early Christians, this idea, there was only one curious, there was only one king that deserves our allegiance, and his name is Jesus. And so John wasn't about to bend the knee to Rome, to Domitian, and to the culture of that day. And so he was considered a troublemaker, disrupting the unity of the empire. And so John was the last of the apostles that was alive, and the Romans knew that they couldn't murder John because he would become a martyr, and it would become a spark for another wave of Christianity to take place. And so they arrested John, and they banished him to the island of Patmos. Now, Patmos is an island. It's actually a rock quarry, and the Romans ran a rock quarry, so a lot of the buildings that they would have built would have been built with rocks that would have come out of this quarry, and it was like hard labor. Now, remember, at this stage, uh, he's an old man, and so he's exiled to this island of Patmos. Patmos is about 10 miles off of the coast of Turkey, and so John, think about this, as a pastor, in fact, They believe that John 
was the last pastor uh, of Ephesians. That's where he was actually kind of arrested uh, and taken from, which would have been a really large and influential church in that region. And so what, what's happening now is that you have John, an apostle and a pastor, the last of the original, the OGs, right, that are still alive. And he's now in this rock quarry on this island of Patmos looking back across to Turkey. And he could probably kind of on a good day see the coastline. And what's going through his mind, what's going through his heart, as it does for any good pastor, is deep concern for the church, for the people of God, and what they're experiencing, the persecution, the confusion, the disorientation. In fact, what was beginning to happen in the church is that the church was functioning now behind closed doors. Where they had experienced great favor, almost 50 years of persecution had left them operating now in the shadows and kind of behind closed doors. Immorality was starting to gain a foothold. Heresies were starting to arise in the church. And so John is likely praying for this church. And it's in this context that God gives this revelation of Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He delivers it to John. And so John's on this island, concerned for the church, concerned for the people of God who are facing anxiety, uncertainty, fear, stress, persecution, confusion. You ever been there? You ever been in that place where just overwhelmed by life, facing kind of a fear that paralyzes you or a stress that overwhelms you, a confusion with, I don't know what to do and what I'm supposed to do next. A doctor who says, we need to get an MRI. One of those undefined meetings that your boss puts on your calendar. Ever had any of those? A child who's gone sideways, a marriage that you just know is on the rocks, bills that keep piling up. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. Where is God in the middle of all of this? And this is exactly where John was. This is exactly where the early church was. Where is God in the face of all of this fear, anxiety, uncertainty, stress, persecution, disorientating things going on in culture? Where is God in the middle of all of this? And what's so amazing about this letter that we're going to unpack over the next eight weeks is that it shows us God's response to those cares and concerns. What I find really interesting is that that God does not respond by telling John and the elders of the church, hey, let's create a task force on political terror. God doesn't respond to John and the early church and say, listen, I'm giving you a new set of programs to implement in these churches. He doesn't call John to form some sort of resistance movement. He doesn't give John and these early Christians some sort of strategy about how they're going to slowly displace pagans in government, right? Not that that's a bad thing, right? But he doesn't give John more cash for the church budget, although we'll take it. It's all good, right? But that, God doesn't do any of those things. You know what God's response to the fear and the uncertainty, the anxiety and the stress the persecution and the pressure that was going on in the early church, his response was to give John a powerful vision of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to us? Is Jesus 
yeah, thanks, Jesus. Thanks that we, you died for us and you rose for us. And, and thank you, Jesus, that I, I can get on with my life. Thank you that I get a ticket to heaven. Thank you for all of that. Is that who Jesus is? Is Jesus someone that, you know, 911, I need some help today, Jesus. Who is it that Jesus is to you and to me? Who is it that Jesus is to, to our church? What place does he hold in our hearts and our minds and our affections? Because this is the response of God to all of the uncertainty, to all of the fear and stress and confusion that that early church was experiencing in the culture in which they live. It was written to them, but it was written for us. What's Jesus' response to your situation? What's Jesus' response to our culture? What's Jesus' response to our confusion, to, 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 to the uncertainty, to the fear, to the pressure, to the persecution, to the stress, to the anxiety that you and I might be feeling? It's a vision of who he is. Now, it's interesting that John walked with Jesus 60 years prior. I mean, John could have pulled to mind all kinds of images of who Jesus is. The man who turned 120 gallons of water into vintage wine. The man that was driving money changers out of the temple. He feeds the 5,000. He calms the raging storm. He raises Lazarus from the dead. But this new situation that the early church found themselves in, this situation that John, the Apostle John, found himself in required a new vision of Jesus. A vision of Jesus for who he truly is today, now, as we take steps into the future. And what, G, what John, or what God does, is that God reveals an image of Jesus. Not just a, a Jesus who shows up in empathy, but a Jesus who shows up in authority. Not just a suffering Savior who would lay down his life so that you and I could receive life, but a risen Lord and King who's been given all authority over everything on this planet. This is how God reveals and answers and responds to what was going on in the, amongst the disorientating uncertainties of the day in which they lived. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 1. In verse 10, I'm going to skip through just a few verses. And once again, remember, this is just intro to set our hearts. Where are we supposed to go this summer? But in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, it says this. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so recognize, this isn't something that was like just in John's head. John's actually hearing this voice behind him it sounds like a trumpet. What we read in the rest of that chapter is that Jesus, he then begins to speak and give instructions. And he says, I want you to write these things down so that those who read them, and by the way, it's read them aloud, will be blessed. He goes on in verse 12 and he says this. The first part of the verse, he says, I turn to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when he turned, he saw a person. Now, the person he saw was someone that he lived with in Palestine 60 years prior, but now he's different. There's something different about this revelation of who Jesus is in this moment for this circumstance where they found themselves in the world. He continues on, part B of, of 
verse 12, and he says this, and on turning, I saw seven lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. John's using very specific language to help us understand who it is that he's seeing. And this phrase, the Son of Man, was the Hebraic way of saying this is a human being, but it's not any ordinary human being. In fact, he's referring back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's this towering figure, this vision of a king who rules and reigns. He's the central figure in all of history. He's the one to whom all authority and all the kingdoms of the earth have been given. He's the one to whom all people in every age owe their allegiance. And so he's writing this in such a way that, man, it's, it's, it might not make immediate sense, but man, he's drawing from Daniel, he's drawing from Ezekiel, he's drawing from the Old Testament, he's drawing from current cultural pictures throughout this book. You'll, you, if you were to read it, you would begin to understand and see. But the central person, the person that he turned to see was Jesus, the Son of Man, the King of Kings. Now here's what's interesting. Where is Jesus? It says that This son of man character was in the midst or among these seven lampstands. We know because of Revelation 1 verse 20 that the lampstands that are being referred to in this verse are the churches, the seven churches. Where is Jesus risen in all of his glory? Where is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Where is Jesus, the one who has all authority that we can lean into in the face of uncertainty? Where is he? He's in the midst of his church. Jesus is not distant. We've said this before. Jesus is not out there. Jesus is not some landlord that checks in once in a while. No, Jesus is active amongst his church. But do we see it? Do we know it? Are we aware of it? Are the cultural waters in which we swim clouding our vision to see who he is and what he's up to? It goes on and it actually describes the Son of Man. He's got white hair and his face beams like the sun and he's got eyes like flames. And and what's interesting about those verses, um, that 13, 14 in that passage, is that What's being described, the Son of Man is dressed as a high priest and as a king. He's the one who's been given all authority. One little tidbit is that normally you would wear a belt around your waist. I don't know about you. That's how I try to wear them. But it's interesting because when you read it, what it says to us is that actually Jesus isn't wearing his belt around his waist. Jesus is wearing the belt around his chest, which is indicative of someone who has is now resting in what they've accomplished. Do you see the vision? Do you see what John, in the face of stress and fear and anxiety and uncertainty, in the face of a culture that is disorienting and doesn't make sense, and how do I raise my kids, and how do I live in all of this? Jesus shows up and says, let me tell you who I am. I'm not just the suffering servant. I'm not just the one that came as, uh, as, a, as a baby and lived the perfect life, the life you and I couldn't live, and willingly went to the cross and gave my life and rose from the dead so that you could have life, that there could be an exchange. No, 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 no. I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the one to whom all allegiance is due. I am the one who is in control and in authority over all things. And where is he? He's in the midst of his church. He's here. He functions, he moves, he helps, he guides, he leads. 
How do you respond to that? And this is what, G, this is what John says in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of, the de- of death and Hades. And what Jesus literally says to John, who, and I, I, would, I would imagine that every single one of us, when we, if we were to encounter Jesus in all of his glory, the fullness of who he is, all authority being due his name, if we were to encounter him, I'm sure every one of us in this room would fall as though we were dead on the floor. But what's so interesting about Jesus, who is in the midst of his church, is that Jesus comes to John, puts his hand on John, and effectively says, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Don't be stressed. I am the Lord and master. I'm in control and in charge. One pastor says it this way, fear not tomorrow, for tomorrow is already one. And there's this picture of who Jesus is. There's this picture that John is trying to help these early believers and and the the fact that it's recorded in the canon of Scripture, it's for us to see who Jesus is, that in spite of fear, in spite of uncertainty, in spite of any anxiety and stress, in spite of disorientating culture and confusion and pressure, whatever you might be feeling, in the face of all of that, there's a risen Lord. His name is Jesus. He's in the midst of his church. But he's not just in the midst of his church. He comes to you and to me personally. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be stressed. Don't be worried. I'm king. I'm master. Jesus effectively shows up in Revelation chapter 1. And by the way, it's repeated in Revelation 21. It bookends this letter. Jesus shows up to say, I make a way better boss than you do. Give me control. Yield to me. Surrender to me. And one of the things that we recognize about Revelation, you know, sometimes we read Revelation and we get confused about what does this mean? It was written in this kind of style of writing. By the way, the reason why it was written the way that it was written is partly because you had Roman soldiers that were going to read this before it was getting sent to the the mainland. It needed to confuse them enough but make sense to the people that it needed to get to, Right? But the other thing, the other reason why it was written the way that it was written is because it's an apoc- it's apocalyptic lit. It's a little bit like, how many of you ever watched or looked at political par- cartoons in the, in the newspaper or online, right? Political cartoons communicated information, but they evoked something in you. They stirred an emotion. They caused you to move forward. I'm going to move forward in belief with some sort of conviction, with some sort of boldness, with some sort of courage. This is exactly what, was trying to, what John was trying to do in this letter of Revelation. But what we need to recognize is that there is nothing new. There is nothing that you have not already seen, heard, or read, or understood in Revelation that hasn't been recorded somewhere in the Bible. It might be said in a new way. There might be a virgin birth And instead of an enemy who or a snake that's trying to bite the heel and crush and all that kind of stuff, there's a dragon that's trying to go after this baby. It's recording stuff that's already been in there. But what it's trying to help us to understand is that Jesus is you're and my better boss. Some of you have great bosses. Some of you 
Our staff has an amazing boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. You're getting a raise in. You're getting a raise in. You're not, you're getting, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes we try to control our own life. And what Jesus is, what the book of Revelation is trying to help us understand is what scripture has been trying to help us understand since day one, right back in the book of Genesis, that Jesus is a true and better master, savior, rescuer. Jesus is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. His garden was a much tougher garden and his obedience is actually imputed to us as righteousness. Jesus is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, his blood cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God, leaves all that is familiar in obedience to God so that the purpose and plan of God could be accomplished. Jesus is a true and better Isaac not, uh, who not only offered, was offered by his father but who was sacrificed for us all. And while God said to Abraham, now I know you truly love me because you did not withhold your son, at the foot of the cross, we can say to God, our Father, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son. Jesus is the true and better Jacob. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the true and better Job. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who did not risk her losing an earthly palace, but ultimately lost his place. Heavenly, right? This heavenly one who would risk his life and gave it his life for us. Who did not say, if I perish, I perish. But when I perish, I perish for those who I've come to rescue and to save. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb. He is the true temple. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true light. He's the true bread. Jesus is better. This is the picture that Revelation is trying to paint for us. And so in the face of our uncertainty, in the face of stress and fear, and I know I'm using those words over and over, but you have your version of whatever that might be. For some, you've come through it. For some, you're in it. And maybe for many of us, we're looking or we're approaching it in the future. And what I want you to hear as your pastor this morning is that we have a king, we have a Lord, we have a master who rules over all, who's, who, who's been given all authority in the heavens and the earth. That ought to change how we live our life. But the question this morning is what place does Jesus have in your life? Is Jesus a side dish or is Jesus the main course? Is Jesus somebody I call when I need some help? Or is my life postured and positioned in such a way that come hell or high water, come what may, my allegiance is to him and him alone? That he has that place in my heart. He has that place in my life. Oh, over the next seven weeks, we'll unpack what does that mean and how do we do that and what does that look like. But this morning, as we close, what place does Jesus have in your life? First Chronicles 29, verse 11, I'll close with this verse. It says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power 
and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. O Lord, you are exalted as head above it all. And that's true. But the critical question is, is he exalted above all in your life and in my life? Is he exalted above all in the life of our church? Is he exalted above all in the life of your family? This is Revelation chapter 1. This God's response to what you might be going through was not to throw more money at it, not to throw somebody alongside you, not to kind of give you some wisdom and give you some resource or give you a fresh strategy, though, by the way, he does all of those things because he's a loving heavenly father that we can ask for wisdom and he gives it to us without reproach. But God's response, and I think in this moment right now, God's response was, do you see Jesus as high and lifted up? Do you see Jesus as above all else? Is Jesus greater than your sin? Is Jesus greater than your fear? Is Jesus greater than your circumstances? Is Jesus greater even than those good things that are in your life? Does he possess the place of honor? Does he possess the place that's rightfully his? in every one of our lives because we are his creation. We are his children. 